Our scripture lesson today is the uh, gospel reading from the lectionary. I'll also in the sermon be referring to the other three readings, although they will not be before us at this point. So I'll be reading from from Mark 7, some selected verses. This is about halfway through Mark's gospel, and the uh, conflict between Jesus and established religious authorities has become apparent, and that is part of what is in this passage. And when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups and pots and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then Jesus called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile but the things that come out are what defile for it is from within from the human heart that evil intentions come fornication theft murder adultery avarice Wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Augustine wrote, My soul's house is too meager for you to visit. Please enlarge it. We ask you today through this worship and through this sermon that you will enlarge our souls, our hearts, and therefore our houses. In the name of Christ, Amen. A few weeks ago on vacation in Maine, I had a discussion with a couple who are active and committed Quakers and who lead a Sunday morning Quaker meeting on the island each week. I asked them how a Quaker meeting is structured. They explained that the group gathers in silence, that there's a designated elder who greets for the day and opens the meeting, that people then sit in a silent circle 
until someone is moved to speak, either by the Holy Spirit or prompted by a poem or reading that has been in their lives recently. Being a choreographer of worshiper of worship myself and always aware of things that can go wrong, I ask what happens if someone speaks for far too long or dominates the group or even speaks inappropriately. They said that in such a case, the elder for the day gets up and walks over and just puts his or her hand on the shoulder of the person. And usually they sit down and return to silence. But if they don't, the elder then asks them so to do. And it all seems to work out. Some of you have got experience with Quaker meetings. It's an entirely different way of worshiping than we have, though every minister's silent fear is an elder getting up, (laughs) placing the hand on the shoulder and saying it's time to sit down. But like every worship service in every tradition, including in our own, the Quaker meeting involves ritual. Rabbi Jack Moline, our longtime friend who for many years led the synagogue down the street, describes what ritual means to him. It's almost worth being religious, he writes, just to be able to perform rituals connected with a faith tradition. The prostration during Muslim prayer, the administration of communion during Christian worship, the devotional positions of Hindu spiritual practices, the choreography of Jewish liturgy, all of these engage the participant in a larger endeavor. Jack goes on to acknowledge what we Calvinist Christians claim to have uniquely discovered, namely that ritual can become rote behavior. But then he adds... When ritual is imbued with meaning by community and practitioner alike, it adds depth of life and reinforces the values that produced it in the first place. Ritual is not something limited to church or synagogue or mosque. In our nation this past week, in the very different funerals of John McCain and Aretha Franklin, We have seen rituals that are both religious and secular, sacred and civic, that bear witness to the role each person has played in the past half century of our nation's life. As Jack writes, ritual is not the sole purview of religious communities. Now in the passage that we just read today, The Gospel writer Mark expresses a critique of Jewish ritual that he, I've got this written incorrectly, the Gospel writer Mark expresses a critique of Jewish ritual and Jesus joins in that critique later in the passage. Jewish officials ask Jesus, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders? But why do they eat with defiled hands? Mark then explains, parenthetically, 
but with a tone of criticism. All the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands. Jesus then enters the conversation. But as Whitney said in the children's sermon, he appears less concerned about the specific practices that Mark is critiquing than with the intention and motivation that lie behind both the ritual and Mark's critique of it. Jesus quotes the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, who is common to himself and to the religious parties that he's criticizing. This people honors me with their lips, Isaiah says, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus then further emphasizes his focus on the intention and the motivation behind the ritual rather than the ritual itself. Listen to me, Jesus says. There's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus' focus is clearly more on the heart than on the practice that the heart produces. Now it is at this point that this somewhat obtuse conversation about ritual can begin to relate to us. When Jesus shifts from critiquing specific ritual practices to focusing on the human heart, he then follows with a common Christian and Greco-Roman custom of actually listing the vices that he is holding up for examination and reform. If we will listen closely to this list, carefully, one by one, the elements on it may reflect matters with which we wrestle in our own hearts. The list reads as follows. Fornication. Theft. Murder. Adultery. Avarice. Wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. When we listen to these vices one by one, our first reaction may be to say, especially concerning some on the list, that's ridiculous. I don't do that. These don't apply to me. But as we let the list sink into our hearts and minds, we may recognize one or two on this list that give us pause, that lead us to wince, that lead us to lower our eyes, that may even lead us to bow our heads. We may come to realize that some items on this list have begun 
as occasional visitors to our heart, but visitors who, over time, have become long-term tenants with clothes in the closet and special food in the refrigerator and mail delivered to an address that used to belong to us alone. In these delightful few days between the end of summer and the beginning of fall program year, I've managed to do a massive, long overdue clean out and throw away of paper from files in my desk. In the midst of tossing out articles and memos and communications, most of which are stored or available online anyway, I came across a poem by Stephen Dunn that was published nearly a year ago today in The New Yorker. The poem features a man walking into a large, classy home with high ceilings and a well-tended garden that he has inherited after long years of expectation. Dunn depicts what goes through the man's heart and mind as alone he walks through this home. You shouldn't be surprised that the place you always sought and now have been given carries with it a certain disappointment. Here you are finally inside and not a friend in sight. The only gaiety that exists is the gaiety you've brought with you and how little you had to bring. And the exposed wooden beams, once a major attraction, now feel pretentious, fit for someone other than you. But it's yours now. And you suspect you'll be known by the paintings you hang, by the books you shelve, and no doubt your need to speak about the wallpaper as if it weren't your fault. Perhaps that's why wherever you go these days, Vanity has followed you like a clownish dog. Theft? Murder? Probably not. But envy? Avarice? Folly? May even the list of vices in this scripture lead us to apply the medicine of scripture, each to our own source. This honest exposure of who and what has taken up residence in our own hearts is not in the Bible simply to take us on a tour of the unwanted and the unpleasant. It is rather a necessary prelude for the cleansing the conversion, the healing of the heart. While in this particular passage, Jesus is more in the mode of exposing the human propensity than describing a way out of it, the other three passages that the lectionary designates for our reading this Sunday join Jesus' focus on the heart. And they bear witness in a positive way to what the human heart is capable of doing when its chambers are open to God. 
In all of literature, religious or secular, there's no more beautiful expression of what the heart can experience than the love that is found in the Song of Songs. The second chapter, which we often hear Dave Allen singing, not today, but the second chapter, which is familiar to us through his and the choir's voice, opens with a woman calling out to the one whom her soul loves. The voice of my beloved. Look, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking in through the lattice. Her lover then responds, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Jewish and Christian writers over the centuries have seen the love between these two human beings as akin to the love of God for the church and the love each of us can have for God. That love begins when we open our hearts to the possibility of God's existence, to the possibility of God's active presence in the world, to the possibility of God's presence and care for us in our lives. God's love is gazing in at the windows of our hearts, looking through the lattice. We must let God's love in. Likewise, Psalm 45, described by the biblical editor as a love song, begins with a citizen expressing love for her earthly ruler. My heart overflows with a goodly theme, she says. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This love for a human leader is then transformed and redirected into a higher love for God. Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equity. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. To be sure for us to equate love for a ruler with love for God is fraught with danger. But when a ruler embodies such character traits as equity, And righteousness, such love can be a harbinger of a greater love for God. And finally, from the New Testament epistle of James, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, He gave us birth by the word of truth. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Again, touched by the word of God, From above, our hearts welcome the God 
who seeks to enter. When I drew up the sermon schedule several months ago and read these words of critique from Jesus, I knew I wanted to get at the matters of the heart that lay behind these words. I chose the title Simplicity because I knew whatever else I ended out saying, I wanted to stress that in the final analysis, faith is a matter of the heart, a matter that is ultimately simple. Our hearts are large. No matter how much they have become cluttered by the items on the list that Christ enumerates, there is room in them for the word that Christ implants from above and for the love that that word instills within us. Such love, once implanted in our heart, will grow and it will begin to crowd out these other items on the list. For such growth to happen, we have to let the love in. But we can let it in. It is ultimately a simple matter. And it rests with us, with our hearts. Let the love of God in. Let that love in. Let it in. Amen.